A game of rugby takes 80 minutes. That's 4,800 seconds. But it only takes one to win a scrum, to steal a line out, make a break and score a try. One second for a hero to become a legend, for one team to become champions. And it's their line-out that creates the opportunities to score their tries, and that's exactly what happened. He goes wide, and he finds a winger. Oiderman, he's faster than a bald man's haircut. Oiderman, and he gets the try. What a heartbreaker. Welcome to MLR Kickoff, episode 67, with your hosts, Dan Power and Pete Steinberg. Well, well, rugby fans, episode 67 is upon us. It's uh, Dan Power with you, joined by the professor, Pete Steinberg. And Pete, uh, well, four seasons in less than 24 hours here in Colorado, as we saw record highs into bushfires to falling ash now to rain and snow today. Are you bundled up? Are you warm, buddy? Hot chocolate? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying not to leave the house for the next two days before it warms up. Um, it's obviously an early snow in Colorado, in, in this early in September, but we have September snows. I think the 60-degree uh, change in temperature, 70-degree change in temperature in like 12 hours is what, is what really threw me off. But um, uh, my, my daughter Penelope was very happy to put on her brand new Elsa boots. That's we just got the same ones. Uh, this, For you? Is it, is it, no. Do they, uh, do they make them as big as? Do they make them in size 14s? Yeah. No, I've already had mine. I had the frozen one. But oh, frozen frozen one. two ones, right? Yeah. You got the new ones? Yeah. yeah, I, got yeah, frozen, yeah. I got the originals, the OGs. But uh, just to save a little thought for my tomatoes in the garden. Uh, Hashtag pray for the tomatoes because oh, yeah. uh, the frost is not going to do them well. But let's go on to rugby, mate. We've got a big show coming up. We're going to go around the grounds. We're going to talk. To World Cup winner and old glory front rower, Tendai Matawira, the beast, who joins the show to talk everything Major League Rugby, his time here, and a little bit uh, of everything, really, with rugby. So it's a good show, mate. But um, are you missing rugby? Are you missing Major League Rugby? Am I missing Major League Rugby? I <laughs> yes, I am. I have to say, I, I'll, I'll tell you that I, um, you know, the, the, the uh, premiership is back and, you know, we had... Super Rugby, both in Australia and New Zealand. I, I mean, I don't know if you watched the North-South game in New Zealand, but it's well worth a, um, a watch. It's a, it's a really great game. Like for a trial match, for something that doesn't seem to that matter, it was, uh, um, it was, yeah, it was a good game. So it's nice to be able to get the rugby fixed, but certainly looking forward to Major League Rugby in 2021. Yeah, it sure was. And also 70-plus points in that game. They were yeah. doing everything. It was special. And some really phenomenal scores. I mean... You know, the one thing that this has really shown, I think, when you look at the different, um, the, the, the games around the world are different and there's no one surprisingly, um, or maybe not surprisingly, that has the skills and the commitment um, that New Zealand rugby has. I mean, I mean, they've got players just ready to go all the time that just step up, that can play a game. I mean, I, I remember <clears throat> I spent a couple of weeks down in, in Canterbury um, with the uh, Mida 10 team and a bit with the Super Rugby team. And I remember one of the biggest takeaways I took was that uh, there was a, um, a scrum half that was struggling a little bit. And the coach was basically, you know, you need to get better. And this is what you need to do. Um, but the coach wouldn't work with him. And I was kind of talking to the coach afterwards. And he goes, oh, yeah, we've got like five scrum halves that are probably as good as him. So, so we're, we're, we're really looking for the guy that can improve himself because that's how we're going to make that selection. So, yeah, the quality of, um, of rugby down in, in New Zealand, and, and actually pretty good in, uh, um, uh, in, in Australia, Dan, to be fair. Um, you know, some of the uh, um, Super Rugby Australia has been pretty good. Not too bad, but remember they're playing against other Australians, so it always <laughs> changes when you add the Kiwis into the mix. Just that's remember, 2011, they won a World Cup on their fourth or fifth string fly half. So That's true. Um, that is, that's just it, tells it you the off, depth. It was off on vacation and came back. Steve, right? Stephen Donald, yeah he, was, yeah, he was off fishing somewhere, and they're like, come in, get off the boat, and go win a World Cup. But uh, let's, uh, let's not beat around the bush too much as we will uh, introduce our star guest for this episode. It is the World Cup winner. One of the most, I think the third most capped Springbok of all time, Tendai Matawira, the beast from Old Glory, and he sat down with us earlier today. 
All right, we are joined now by 2019 World Cup winner, but more importantly to MLR, Old Glory front rower, Tendai Matawira. Big BC, how are you, brother? Back in South Africa? No, I'm great, man. Doing good. Back in uh, in Durban, uh, South Africa right now. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's springtime, the sun is out. So, yeah, man, I'm positive and happy. Oh, beautiful stuff. We appreciate you uh, joining the show. It's a, it's a pity we didn't get to chat with you during the season, obviously, it was interrupted. So I'd love to dive in to first your MLR experience and what you thought of the game here in the U.S. No, no, I was uh, really enjoying my, uh, my stint uh, at All Glory and, uh, you know, playing in the MLR. And I found that, you know, the rugby is uh, really improving and uh, there's obviously uh, quite a, you know, um, uh, a hunger to learn, you know, especially from... Uh, a lot of the boys that are playing in the league, you know. So, yeah, it's very positive to see that, you know, USA rugby is really growing. And I think I was actually uh, watching uh, some of the games, uh, you know, last year. Um, I was streaming them on Facebook. So I kind of saw, like, you know, that there was an upward curve there and a lot of, obviously, interest from from uh, guys that are playing outside of the States, you know, to come and join the league. So, yeah, man, it's exciting time for USA rugby. Can you talk to us a little bit about... Um the decision that you made? Because I think for, for all of us, I actually um, met Paul Shee at the World Cup. Um, I was out there for the semifinal weekend. He had hinted. He was like, oh, there's a guy playing this weekend that is going to come. But I don't think anyone thought it would be sort of not just the World Cup winner, but sort of one of the keys of the final with your scrummaging. You could have really played anywhere in the world. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to play at MLR and sort of how that came about? Yeah, no, it was uh, it was a big decision. I can tell you that for sure. Uh, there was a lot of interest, you know, from uh, you know the French league. I had a few clubs knocking on the door, but uh, I guess you know at the end of the day, you know, I really was looking for you know um, an uh, an adventure, you know, something that was really gonna help kind of build on my legacy. And I think the the MLR, you know, really attracted me as a player. You know, I think I love I love the states. I've always traveled there, you know, from time to time. Me and my wife, you know, spent a uh, a couple of weeks in New York, you know, so I've got this this big love, you know, for the USA. So for me, it was, uh, you know, kind of also coming to you know, to kind of travel and be exposed to, you know, uh, the United States. And uh, yeah, and also kind of helping the rugby to, to, to kind of grow and take off. So I think, uh, you know, and when I made that decision, there was a whole lot of uh, factors you know, that played a, you know, a role in, in, in that. And uh, probably the biggest one was that, uh, you know, the, uh, I looked at a guy like David Beckham, what he did to the MLS, you know, uh, and I thought to myself, I want to be a catalyst, you know, uh, to come to the States and actually grow the game globally and, uh, you know, and then uh, obviously contribute to my legacy. You know? So one of the areas of the game that has has been developing, and I think it's sort of been the challenge of, U.S. teams for a long time has been the scrum. Obviously, that's one of your big areas. So, you know, um, even though the season was shortened, you got into quite a few scrums. Can you talk a little bit about both what you feel like? In, you know, I'm, I'm the coach on this, um, B, so this is sort of me getting a little nerdy. So can you talk a little bit about sort of from a scrummaging technique, what you saw when you were in the MLR, working with the old glory guys, particularly the Americans, and how you think the scrum can improve um, in the game in the U.S.? Oh, yeah. I think, uh, you know, one of the first things uh, I encountered was obviously the artificial turf, <laughs> which was <laughs> a right. pretty new experience for me. And it's kind of, it, it, it obviously is a different, you know, pl- platform to scrummage on. And I wasn't, I wasn't used to that. I think I only ever played one game on artificial turf, and that was against the Saracens. In a warm up, in a warm up game before uh, Super Rugby, so right. it was kind of you know trying to adjust to that, and I actually found that you know uh, the the scrummaging is actually quite decent. Uh, the biggest uh, <laughs> uh, problem I'm, I saw, or maybe a point where you know, growth is needed, is uh, the refereeing. You know, at, at, at set piece time, you know, most of the, re- the referees I encountered in uh, you know in the couple of games I played, you know, they were kind of clueless. They didn't really know how to, you know, to, to referee the scrum and, you know, uh, being uh, wary of, you know, guys scrumming in and, and you know, and just uh, all those little things that make a huge difference at the end of the day, you know, to, 
to a scrum. So that was probably the biggest, uh, you, know, uh, you know, point of, of concern that I saw. But I was, it's really positive to get someone like Jonathan Kaplan who's coming to Riff now in the league. I think he's going to add a lot of value because, you know, for you to kind of, you know, uh, manage the scrum, you need experience and you need, to, you need to know exactly what's going on. You can't just guess, you know. But, so, uh, yeah. so, what I, so, 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 you know, this is, a, this is always a good one. It's always the ref's fault, right? So it's sort of like, you know, we have to... But I think, I think it's, it's true. I think that I'm not sure, um, you know, the, if, you, if you referee without that experience, you look for what's listed in the laws, you look for the elbow, right? You look for staying square. But that is so simple that there's a lot of other stuff that's, that's going on. So I think in, in MLR, because the North American referees, that's what they're told to do. I think it's hard for them to really get beyond that. And I think you're right. I think Jonathan Kaplan can come in and help a lot and kind of like not just what the law states or what the interpretation is, but also having some um, belief in seeing and understanding what you see and making those calls. Yeah, no, certainly. Yeah. So I think, you know, his wealth of experience is definitely going to, you know, add so much value. And he did referee um, myself, you know, in a couple of games, you know, when I played for the Sharks, especially in Super Rugby. So, you know, he knows what he's doing there. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, a big step in the right direction for the MLR. Yeah, would you be as excited if you're still playing that he was coming over? A couple of little tricks probably <laughs> wouldn't work with him there, hey? Yeah, no, I think uh, I would definitely be very excited, you know, if you chirp him a couple of times in the field because I, I know him very well, you know, so yeah. I would yeah, I, I, yeah <laughs> I, I would wonder about that. Do you think he would be like, this This might give us a bit of an insight. Do you think he would be harder on you? Like, like because he knows you and because of all of the experience and the high level you've had? Or do you think, do you think you'd be able to get away with stuff because of that relationship? Tell us a little bit of that insight about Jonathan Kaplan. I think he would be hard on me, but the, the, probably the biggest, uh, the biggest thing will be uh, that he will, he will listen to me. He will take my, you know, my opinion, you know, um, and uh, obviously try and, you know, maybe make an informed decision. So if I had to query on a call or say that, you know, I feel like this was wrong, he would listen. He would have an ear to, for that, you know. So yeah, but I wouldn't say he'll be leaning on me. You know, give me the easy, the easy road. No. <laughs> Well, if, if Pete's the technical side of the podcast, I'm the emotional side, Tendai. So I want to go all the way back. A lot of people probably aren't aware that you were actually born and grew up in Zimbabwe and then made your way to South Africa. You're a one-club man with the Sharks in Durban. Tell us a little bit about that journey from growing up in Zimbabwe, the transfer to South Africa, and obviously there was a little controversy around your... Uh, not citizenship, but nationality yeah. when, you, when you play for the Springboks. Didn't someone want to get you deported at one point and sent back to Zimbabwe because you're playing for the box? Yeah, no, it was quite, a, yeah, quite an interesting journey that I had. You know? So, yeah, so I, was, I was born and raised in Zimbabwe and uh, pretty much played uh, schoolboy rugby there. And uh, I was there where I showed you know, a lot of potential. And, uh, you know, obviously at... Uh, uh, talent in the sport and a lot of people told me at a young age that if I really take rugby seriously you know I can uh, make it as a pro so you know as a um, as a schoolboy we used to get invited to uh, play in some of the tournaments in South Africa so that's where I got exposed to some of the scout you know the scouts from the Sharks and they uh, they picked me up uh, at one of the uh, the local uh, games uh, in Durban and then you know they offered me a bursary and uh, yeah, the opportunity to come and uh, you know uh, come and play rugby in in Durban. So yeah, it was a dream come true for me. And I moved over to to Durban uh, in 2004 as a young 18 year old. And uh, you know, I embarked on this journey, uh, uh, and it was like a do or die for me because I was coming from a, a really uh, tough environment. You know, I, I was kind of raised by two parents that gave me everything that I had, you know, to try set me off, you know, on the right path and just, uh, you know, uh, you know, make, help me to be successful. So this was kind of the opportunity for me to kind of, you know, better my life and better the life of my family. So I came over to, to, uh, to, to the Sharks Academy and uh, from there, you know, I worked really hard. Then I played all my junior rugby uh, under 19s, under 20s, under 21s for the Sharks. And then I uh, graduated into the Sharks' uh, um, main team in 2007. 
uh, when I was 21. And then, uh, yeah, pretty much played a lot of rugby for the, for, for the Sharks. You know, I had a 14-year career, became the most capped uh, player um, ever for the Sharks in Super Rugby. And then, uh, yeah, and then also kind of made my debut for the Springboks in 2008, uh, straight after making my debut for the Sharks. And that controversy that you speak about happened in 2010, after I'd actually played, uh, yeah, three years of Springbok rugby. And it was because, because at the time there was a minister of sport uh, who kind of wanted to just uh, be hard on rugby. Uh, he viewed rugby as a white man's sport. So, you know, he kind of saw me as a... Uh, an opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, uh, make a, a, some sort of uh, example and target rugby. So he stopped me from playing because I didn't have my South African citizenship, but I had actually qualified under the IRB laws to play for the Springboks. So it was, uh, it was a tough time. And I actually thought that, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't play for the Springboks again. But, uh, you know, I just kept on believing. And in the end, uh, I got my passport and, uh, yeah, I played for the Springboks again, yeah. That guy sounds like a, a real sharp, uh, sharp guy. Huh? What was he doing last year in Japan? Not lifting up the World Cup trophy, that's for sure. Probably yeah. sitting somewhere in his mum's basement playing video games, wishing he could be on the same stage. But <laughs> let's, let's talk more about the Springboks now, brother, because like I said, 08, I believe you started against Wales. Uh, he scored your first try seven days later against Italy. Uh, one of two, right, for the, for the Cap Korea. Fiji and yeah, Italy, I think, had tries. That's a lot of nude runs, Tendai. That's a long stretch there. But <laughs> I know I've had very uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know held up in the try zone. You know, and, uh, <laughs> a couple of moments where I almost scored. And then, yeah, so team player. Uh, you know, you finished. You finished in Japan. Obviously, a World Cup winner. We all know now. Looking back retrospectively at 11, 12 year career with the Springboks, what are some of the standouts for you that you look back on most fondly? Yeah, I think, you know, my, my, my debut was definitely special. Uh, I think, uh, you know, as a young Zimbabwean kid, you know, I, I actually had a dream to play for the Springboks, uh, and I never really thought that it would happen so quickly, you know. So uh, when that moment came, you know, I really grabbed it, you know, with both hands and uh, feet, and, uh, yeah, I just owned it, you know, from day one and really treasured, you know, wearing that green and gold jersey, and uh, it was a huge honour for me. And I just wanted to always, every time when I, you know, played every test cap. I wanted to go out there and give it my utmost best. And I think, you know, 2009 was my defining moment in you know, the British Lions series. Um, that first test uh, against, uh, you know, yeah, against the Lions at King's Park in Durban. And I was facing a full victory, you know, a seasoned campaigner, you know, uh, you know, a World Cup champion, you know, and uh, it, it, so many accolades. And uh, he kind of obviously underestimated me and uh, really made my mark. And then from there, never looked back, man. So, yeah, so I think probably 2009 is, uh, is a standout. And then uh, 2000, yeah, probably 2009 also for the All Blacks for winning uh, against the All Blacks four times in a row, winning at Tri-Nations, probably one of the golden years of Springbok rugby. So, and then uh, probably after that, 2013 was also special under Heineke Mayer, where we pretty much won, I think, 12 out of 13 games. And uh, yeah, and then obviously 2019 winning the World Cup, yeah, the cherry on top. Man. So, so obviously a very long career, and and you know you're st- you've, you stepped away from spring rugby right at the top. What are some of the lessons or um, sort of like tricks or, or approaches that you brought in your Springbrook career? that maybe players that are in, now you've played in Major League Rugby, that, that they can learn from so they can also sort of enhance and have um, these, you know, such a long and um, amazing career. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing for me, and yeah, in my Springbok career especially, uh, was that I was never satisfied, you know. I was always hungry for more and uh, I kind of set myself goals, you know, uh, right at the beginning. At first it was, you know, playing my first test cap and then from there, it was, you know, playing 20 caps. And then after that, it was playing 50 caps. And then every single time I can tell you, there was a guy behind me who was trying to, you know, take me out of my position. Because as you know, in South Africa, you know, um, there's so many players, so many good players. and Everybody wants to play for the Springboks. So, you know, uh, for you to stay up there, you really have to be consistent. And you always have to, you know, um, you know uh, really work hard. 
know, work harder than the opposition and just, you know, keep on breaking the barrier. So that's what I kept on doing from season to season. And fortunately, you know, I didn't get injured often. So I could play, you know, back-to-back seasons. And then I just kept on really uh, focusing on my, my conditioning. I think, uh, you know, played a, a, you know, a, a big part in my longevity, you know. I just made sure that I, I trained so hard, even above the normal training that we, we did as a team, to just set myself apart. And I can tell you, you know, that made probably the biggest difference, you know. I, I just kept on challenging myself, you know, which sometimes, some days I would, you know, work out, you know, uh, you know late at night when, uh, you know, everybody's resting and I would just keep on pushing. And that kind of just drove me to, to kind of just, you know, um, being a step ahead of everybody. And people couldn't really understand why, you know, I was up there for so long because, you know, I can tell you a guy like Steven Kitsoff was consistently chasing behind me and, uh, you know, wanting that number one jersey. So, yeah, I think my advice is that, you know, never get satisfied. Keep on working hard and, uh, you know, just keep on setting your goals and, you know, keep on, you know, breaking the barriers and, yeah, never keep on moving that pig, you know, never allow yourself to, to just, you know, sit in comfort because you've reached your target. You've got to keep on moving, you know? So yeah. that was probably my secret there. Yeah, and I think especially sort of like the, the – so really it's about the mental aspect of the game. And then as you get near the end of the career, it's about maintaining your, your physical ability. What about, like, how to be a great teammate? I mean, you've been a member of some of the best Springbrook teams um, ever – and you have, you know, your experience with MLR, you, you came in, it's, it's a very different environment, but still rugby is a team game, right? So what is it that makes someone a great teammate? So you talked a little bit about yourself, but maybe, you know, both for yourself and some of the best teammates you've ever played with, because it's a team game, what, what do they do that make it such a, you know, that make an impact? I think probably the biggest thing I'll, I'll, I'll say right from the onset is that you have to put your, you know, aside your your own selfish ambitions you know, for the good of the team, because you know I can tell you, um, you know, for a fact, when you get in a in a team, you always want to be the starter. You know, everybody's got the ambition to start, or you know, just uh, you know, yeah, just be on the in the forefront. But when that doesn't happen, and then you get or dropped, or you get put on the bench, your your attitude. So is what defines you from there. You know, are you going to sulk and just sit on the side and be a negative, you know, um, factor in the team, or are you actually going to start actually encouraging the guy who's ahead of you because you know you you, you just want to kind of contribute to the ultimate success of the team, and uh, it's not about you anymore. That's when you become a great teammate, and I think that was probably you know what I discovered early on in my career, you know, especially when I got dropped and um, probably the first thing I did was sulk because I was like, you know, I want to be in the starting lineup. You know, I want to be the guy to be seen playing 60 or more minutes. So you have to set aside that. And then also your pride, you know, you can't be, you can't be, you know, uh, full of pride and not be able to take advice from your teammates. So if you do something wrong, you have to be, uh, you know, able to take correction from your teammates because at the end of the day, they want you, they want the base for, for you. So at the, in, in the heat of the moment, you might maybe drop a ball, you know, um, on the field and then your teammate, whatever, causes you out and then you kind of got to take it, you know, you always got to, you know, try and just, yeah, try to take correction and that's probably one of the biggest things uh, I learned, you know, you got to listen more than talk, you know, especially in, even on the, training for you, listen to your coaches, take correction and be hungry to learn, you know? So that was yeah, some of the key things that makes you a great teammate. Well, certainly, yeah, I, love, I love the idea of listening to the coach speaking as a coach. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that's a, it's, it's great advice and, and usually something you learn at the back end of your career, unfortunately, for a lot of young, you know, good players coming through, the, the ability to be coached instead of, You've been a star through juniors and just relying on that ability to get you through. When you get to the senior rugby levels, it just becomes tougher. Hey, uh, Tendai, you've talked about like some of the great teams you've played in, but you've also played against, you talked about that 09 Lions tour, um, you versus Phil Vickery, 
and then translated over to Adam Jones for the second and third test. I think Vickery actually came back on the third up. You, you destroyed him in the first. But you also faced the All Blacks through that stretch, 11 to 15, where they won two World Cups. Who was the toughest guy you played against in the front row? And then also maybe someone out of the front row that you played against internationally throughout your career. Uh, geez, I think, <laughs> I think the, the, the toughest... Uh tight that I ever um, scrummaged against would be um, Greg Somerville. I think uh, because, you know, at the time I was a young guy, I just come onto, onto the scene, uh, played my first couple of tests against the All Blacks. And he was, a, again, a seasoned campaigner, played 60 or 70 games for the All Blacks. And I remember packing down against him. And the next day, I could not feel my neck, you know, my back. <laughs> Literally felt like it was broken, man. And uh, he taught me a couple of, uh, you know, hard lessons. And in the end, it actually made me a better player. And I remember after after the game, I actually went up to him and asked him, so what did you do in that scrum, you know, just to kind of get a few pointers? So I think, you know, he was probably uh, you know, a tough customer. And then also uh, um, Owen Franks. Uh, you know, he came obviously a few um, a few years after that, and uh, he was probably one of the more consistent scrummages out there. You know, he was yeah in and out. He, he played like a hundred or so games for the All Blacks, and I can tell you, every single Test match, he would you know bring the same attitude. So he was a tough customer, and uh, yeah, we obviously. Uh, um, had mutual respect uh, for each other, you know, eventually, you know, after playing so many tests against each other. Uh, so, and then the one guy from a team perspective who was, an, you know, uh, a nuisance, Richie McCall. <laughs> nah, he was, he was tough, man. Richie McCall, that guy that, that didn't stop coming. We would hurt him, but he would still come, you know, for, yeah, 80 minutes. Uh, Richie McCall would be that guy, yeah. Hey, relentless. Uh, mate, I want to go back to probably one of the, the most captured moments of your career, and it's you and Anton Bressler on the kickoff there. Now, <laughs> did you do that just because you can do it, or what happened there? And has he ever come up to you after? What, what was the conversation like after the game? Did he come up and say, BC, thank you so much? Or is he like, you're too strong for your own good. You threw me up there so high, I lost my balance. For those who <laughs> don't know, it's a famous game, I think, in 2012 off a of restart. Tendai lifts up Anton Bresler. He loses his balance, goes backwards. Normally, you would, he would fall, but you just held him by his shorts above your head for about five seconds, it felt like. But uh, is that just... You did it twice, I think, in your career, right? Didn't, Keegan Daniel was the other one you did as well? Yeah, Not as dramatic, I actually, but... I actually did it a lot more times because it became like a, you know, like a trademark thing. And I used to do it at trainings. And uh, even before that, Stephen Sykes... Um, there was a, there's also an iconic photo of, of me and him as well. So it was always something I, you know, I practiced on the training field. And I think um, uh, most of that is attributed to my, you know, my, my strength in the gym because I was always one of those guys that, you know, relished, uh, you know, waist training. And uh, because of my natural ability and also the gym on top of that, you know, I could do that uh, without breaking a sweat. I don't mean to brag, but I promise, like, you know, trainings, the guys would give me a hard time. You know, can you do it to me? Can you do it to me? All the walks, they want to take care. Like, hey, man, you know, <laughs> give me a break, you know. So when it happened in the field, it was, I can tell you with Anton, we'd probably done it, you know, uh, you know uh, yeah, a couple of times before. So he knew every time when the ball obviously goes a bit further behind him, he knew he, he could reach for it and I would support him and I wouldn't drop him. So that's why he was so confident to kind of go and fetch it. And it was just obviously the perfect moment. And the photos, you know, obviously the, the photos are quite popular now. You know, and everybody loves that moment. But I actually did it, you know, many more times than, uh, you know, that, in that, that game that you, you obviously watched it in there. Can you, uh, can you do it to Pete Steinberg when you come back to the States? <laughs> oh, I'm, pretty certain, I'm pretty certain he'll be able to do that for me. I'm, I, I don't think he has to lift. I also think... Um, Beast, you just came back from a workout, so still, still in game shape, right? Yeah, I'm. Um, so right now, um, I've always had this um, uh, kind of secret uh, obsession. I'll call it like I told you, I love my weights, so I've always wanted to become uh, a, 
no, not a full-on bodybuilder, but you know, try and obviously get into this shape that uh, yeah, I've always kind of aspired to. So rugby, in a way, you have to look a certain shape. You have to be lean. So right now, I'm just trying to build the muscles. So, so I come, I kind of do heavy weight training uh, almost every second day. So yeah, I'm on this bodybuilding workout, and uh, yeah, man, watch the space. <laughs> well, I, I want to I want to bring it back to the uh, um, back to Major League Rugby in your time in the U.S. and and, and when you came over, um, you talked a lot about uh, the ability to have an impact, and in, in particular coaching. And I think you know in the inner cities, obviously a a big um, um, area of opportunity for rugby to grow. Can you talk a little bit about? sort of why you wanted to come to DC, why the inner cities for you and, and the ability to give back is important. Yeah, I think, yeah, you know, giving back uh, for me is, is huge. Now I think uh, right now that I'm done with rugby, it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a particular uh, point that I really focus on, you know, uh, making a difference uh, in the next uh, generation, you know, of young people. And uh, yeah, so I think what excited me to, to come to the States and actually, you know, work with the inner city school kids that really don't have an idea of what rugby is all about. So I think the first time when I went to one of the schools there, the kids didn't have an idea who I was. So it was funny because they introduced me. They're like, this guy's called the Beast. He played for the Springboks. And the kids are like, oh, okay, we don't know. <laughs> and then they put like a... They put, a, they put a highlights package of me on the screen and they started screaming and they went wild. They're like, hey, can you teach me how to do that? Can you teach me how to smash somebody like that? So I learned from the onset that, you know, American uh, kids, they love the impact, they love the contact, the big hits, you know, so, you know, so it was quite, uh, you know, eye-opening. So I kind of went, you know, on the, on the field with them and tried to teach them basic skills, you know, that you wouldn't be able to pass the ball backwards. And then in rugby, you rely on a team. It's not a, it's not a one-man show because in the NFL, you know, you get that pass from the quarterback and then you have to do your thing. You don't really necessarily have to pass, you know. So I kind of saw that, you know, they, you know they, they, there's a kind of an individual mentality with most of the, you know, the boys that came, you know, to the, to the coaching clinics and they had to try and teach them. And probably what impressed me the most is that the speed, the agility, that some of these kids have, you know, it's just insane, you know. So, yeah, so I think the potential I saw there was great. It was sad that it got cut short, you know, because I actually had a really great thing going, you know, with uh, Washington Youth Rugby. I was going, you know, to, to the inner city schools like three times a week and working with, the, you know, the kids. It was enriching for them. It was also enriching for me. So, yeah, a big thing that I'm actually focusing on now that I'm back here in South Africa, I've just started my my own foundation. I just launched it about a week ago where I'm going to be focusing on, uh, you know, working with, you know, with, with, the, with the youth and just trying to create future leaders. And uh, yeah, not necessarily just iconic sportsmen, but just iconic leaders in their own right, you know. Yeah, and, and rugby is, you know, in, in the States, I always tell people that, you know, there isn't a sport in America and in, in the world that, um, helps people express themselves and, and become great leaders. And I think the fact that you've made that commitment um, to, you know, the um, underserved and underprivileged areas and the opportunity that rugby can provide, not just as a sport, but actually just as a development tool is, is really critical. Um, when are we going to see you back in the U.S.? I know you're still connected with DC. Do you plan to come back and uh, um, continue to have that impact? Yes, certainly. Um, so I think next year when the season starts, um, I'll, I'll probably make a um, I'll make a turn there some time, you know, um, to just help out. Like I said, you know, with the scrummaging, I did chat to the to the Old Glory team, and uh, yeah, they're very keen to bring me back there. So yeah, you will be seeing me there. So yeah, man, I look forward to to catching up in person there. Yeah. Your former teammate, Terry Matembu, is coming over too for the Free Jacks. We had him on the show, and he said, once you found out he was coming over here and you had to play against him on the East Coast, you retired. Is that true? <laughs> uh, okay, did he say that? I think I might just... Uh, I know, may be yeah, putting words in his mouth here, BC, one or two, but that was the gist <laughs> I picked up from it. But no, another teammate coming over, 
Uh, do you think do you think we'll see a little bit more of this? Like obviously, Pete mentioned uh, your name was huge, right? Like you were at the pinnacle of your career, just won a World Cup. Like when I saw that come across the the ticker that, that Tendai Matawira was coming to our glory, I I was shocked. Um, do you think we'll see it more though? Do you think we'll see more and more players like yourself making their way over to the US for the opportunity? I think so. No, I, I definitely think so. And uh, I can tell you uh, a lot of uh, even some of my you know ex-teammates reached out to me when I was playing in the MLR and they you know they wanted to ask me how is it like and, and uh, you know, there, there was a lot of interest. So I'm uh, I am sure that you're going to see some big stars you know uh, playing in the MLR going forward. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you jumping on today, mate. Uh, workout looks good. What are you going for? Are we Arnold, Ronnie, Dorian Yates, you know, Phil Heath? <laughs> who's, who's the inspiration in the gym? I don't know if you know a guy called Simeon Panda. He calls himself Simeon Panda on Instagram. I'll go, to, I'm go, I'll go follow him now. I'll go hit him up. Yeah, you must follow him. He's a beast. He's like got yeah. a... So I don't want to be too big. I don't want to be like Ronnie Corbin or anything. I just want to, yeah, you know, get uh, a big size, but not too big. So... Go check out Simeon Band on Instagram when you see. Good shout out. Hey, BC, we appreciate it, brother. Stay safe down there. Love the work you're doing off the field with the youth and with the rugby. And we are looking forward to seeing you back stateside sooner rather than later, mate. No, fantastic. Thank you for having me, man. Thanks for the chat. Well, that's probably one of the best we've had on the show, Pete Tendai. Uh, not surprising, obviously, the, the ultimate professional, professional the, the consummate professional, if you will. Uh, but a great chat. Great to hear his perspective too on on Major League Rugby, and, and you know, good to see that he may actually be coming back for some off field stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, and I think we hear this a lot from the players that that come over. Is the you know the quality of rugby in Major League Rugby is is pretty good, right? Now it's not Super Rugby, but it's definitely um, you know a uh, um, a good level of rugby. If you remember when he came over when he first played, the first time he came into the scrum. I mean, he had some work to do with that old glory scrum. They, they were not on the front foot, and it took him a couple of weeks, I think, to be able to create the collective that, that works there. But I agree with you. I mean, this guy's, I mean, he's a, he's a superstar on the field with his, with his career. I mean, I remember that, um, you know, he talked about going up against Phil Vickery in the, in the British Lions in 2009. I remember that game. So do um, I, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I, and I remember the, uh, you know, obviously the World Cup last year. And so, um, you know, he's... He's a superstar on the field, but you can see from his personality um, and from his commitment to leave a legacy, this formation of his foundation, this is a guy that's a superstar off the field too. I think, you know, really one of the losses probably for Major League Rugby is to not have him for the full season. Yeah, I can't wait until next year. Old Glory game, if he's back, he's going to throw you around like a rag doll. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. I, think, I think I might just like not have any Old Glory home games as a commentator. I'll just be like, I can't, I can't do that. Uh, I don't know when he's going to come back. I'm going to pack a pair of shorts just in case. You're like, oh, I've got my Lululemons on. I can't do it. I'll be like, i got a spare pair for you, buddy. Throw these on. All right, let's go around the grounds, Pete. Uh, obviously, the big news doing the rounds is coming out of Hawaii as the Hawaiian bid runs its 90 days, doesn't have its ducks lined up. And uh, a lot's been made of this in the press from both sides. But as of right now, 2021, we will not see Hawaii. They still have an opportunity, though, and then Major League Rugby extended that opportunity to come back for a bid in 2022. Your thoughts initially on this announcement? Well, you know, we always knew that Hawaii would be a big lift, right? Um, just logistically, financially, it's, it's, there's a reason why there's no major league sports in Hawaii. So we knew it, it was a big lift. Obviously, we had a very committed um, ownership group that felt like that it could do some things. But, if, you know, um, if people want to know more about the expansion process, we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, but Four things that, that, that an expansion team has to be able to demonstrate in the 90 days. Um, first of all, financially, you've got to have some pretty deep pockets to be in Major League Rugby. Um, that, you know, you've got, and, and you've, got to make, you've got to demonstrate that you have access to, to those funds, not just for the expansion fee, but also you have access to the funds to be able to run the team for three years. Um, you have to have a, a facility plan. This has actually been, been quite a difficult issue for many of the teams. Facilities has become... Um, one of the big questions for expansion teams. You've got to have that in place where early on in Major League Rugby, Dan, you kind of like worked it out as you went. Now now they want something. You've got to have a staffing plan in place. So um, the league wants to make sure that you've got the right people in place. 
And then, um, you know, you need to have a business plan. So you've got to be able to demonstrate that you can create something that's sustainable um, over, over the long period. And obviously in the 90 days, that was a lot. There was some back and forth. It sounded like from Hawaii, they felt like they had a lot of agreements in place in Hawaii. I know there were some people on the ground that were working quite hard. We're not sure exactly where that ended up with these different agreements, but what we do know is that Hawaii didn't meet those four tests. And, um, and so they're not going to make it for 2021. It looks like the league is saying, Hey, you know, 2022 still works. But I think, you know, we've seen this a little bit before we saw it with LA coast. You know, I think the the teams that really become successful expansion teams aren't the teams that make big announcements. It's the teams that work um, quietly. I mean, I know that there's another um, expansion group um, in, you know, mainland US. Um, they're in their 90 days, but they're not making a big noise about it because they probably have things in place. Um, I know LA Coast, when they launched and said, hey, we're going to be an MLR franchise, we have the, non, you know, the 90 days um, exclusive negotiating period, they were using that to raise funds. And I don't know if that was also true for Hawaii, where they made this big announcement, they, they made it sound like they were in with the hope that they could raise funds and they weren't able to do that. We, we don't know that. I think I think the disappointing thing is that there was some stuff on social media from Hawaii that sort of disparaged the future of the league that was up for a little bit on their Facebook page and they took it down. It just seems a little bit of a, of a mess. Um, you know, I think everyone would, would, would like a team like Hawaii, you know, to have a major league rugby team in Hawaii because of the natural talent that exists on the islands. Um, maybe it's a little bit early for major league rugby, but that, but that option is still open. The, the really interesting thing, Dan, for me, is if Hawaii is not being added and there aren't any other expansion teams that are going to be added, 2021 is coming pretty quick, is um, the league will have 13. 13 is like a tough number, right? It's a tough number yeah. to come up. It's a prime number. It's a tough number to come up how you're going to manage the league. Of course, we don't know what next season looks like and there's probably going to be some compromises as we go. But um, going in with 13, thinking about alignment and conferences, it's going to make um, the scheduling a little bit more difficult. You know what I found interesting is that another team's in their 90-day window, Pete, and there's no announcement. And you seem to know, what does it rhyme with? What does the city rhyme with? Can you give me a, a hint? Um, no. It rhymes with no. <laughs> Oslo. So, so, so it's think, Oslo, like, isn't it? Yeah, Norway. It's Norway. It's not my place. But I think, you know, that's all, all that I know about. I, I mean, I don't know if there are other teams out there that are, um, you know, going through this process. There have been, there, I, I do know there have been teams that have gone into, that have had a 90-day exclusive window, um, had it expire and not make it with no public announcement. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how it's supposed to work, I think. It's not mm. supposed to be. Um, publicly announced. I think. So, I think if we go back to LA Coast, because at the time I think you had three going through that process that year, and that was um, LA Coast, uh, DC, and Toronto. The Toronto one um, was probably the most evolved when they were going through their ninety days, right? Because so they, they had already, everything in place. Because and then really and then you had um, an announcement of ninety days was. I think it was before the LA Coast announcement was the DC one, but in a sense with the way that they were doing things like their ducks, like they kind of, I think DC kind of knew what was going on and what they needed to do because they were doing, you know, season ticket deposits. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, look, if, if you don't go into the 90 days without a pretty good handle on those four pieces and in particular the money, but in the facility, then you're not going to do it in 90 days. Like these, these agreements don't happen. You should sign up for the 90 days when you have everything in place, in particular, the money. That, that's probably the biggest thing that you have to have in. And I think the, you know, teams have made mistakes by trying to leverage the 90 days to be able to develop some stuff. And, you know, 90, 90 days sounds like a long time, but, you know, getting that's agreement quick. on facilities, getting agreement on people to give millions of dollars, like that doesn't happen in 90 days. That's like a six month, 18 month sales cycle. Yeah, no, it is. It is. And um, we'll see what happens next. It sounds like there's some more news on expansion coming down the pipe. So we'll keep you abreast of everything happening there. This one's going to be a tough one for you, Pete, because on one hand, Eddie Jones is Australian. So you hate him. On the other, he coaches England. So you like him. 
but he has signed on to be a consultant in the San Diego Legion. What did you make of this when this came out? I believe this came out yesterday, maybe the day before from when we were recording. So pretty recent news. Well, I think that this is really smart. You know, if you look at the, um, uh, at, you know, the way the league functions, there's a salary cap and the salary cap says, hey, we're going to create an even playing field by having, um, you know, the costs of players by the teams have some limit and kind of like everyone bumps up against it or gets pretty close. And so we're going to create a lot of um, equality um, and, and, and um, competition by having a salary cap so people can't spend more. But there's no salary cap on coaching. And, you know, teams that really want to be competitive might see this as a, a way to be able to expand that opportunity, right? Is by, um, you know, having the uh, um, opportunity to go out and get world-class coaches. And even if it's on a consulting basis, and maybe it's like, you know, a business class flight in a couple of weeks in San Diego in January when he's not coaching England, you know, there's, I, like, if, 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 I'm a, if I'm a team, I would invest in my coaching staff and my high-performance staff if I wanted to win, because that's a place where I'm not restricted by league rules. And so it makes a lot of sense. And it, and it may not be the, the last. I mean, San Diego's often been sort of like a leader in doing some of this stuff. So we might see other, um, you know, elite coaches get some of these consulting roles that can really um, upskill uh, the coaches that we have um, here in the U.S. working in MLI. Yeah, I remember talking to Eddie in 2015, right before the World Cup. He had uh, he was a coach of the Japanese national side, and they were here at the Pacific Nations Cup. And so part of calling was interviewing, you know, the coaches and stuff. And I got time to sit down with Eddie and kind of go over some stuff. And he had a a big interest in coming back to the States. Like, I think a lot of, you know, as we, as we heard from Tendai, there's a lot of interest in the US for, for obvious reasons. Um, and Eddie say, always wanted to come, but he goes, I'd actually like to do an extended period of time here. And I think, um, you know, we were still obviously a couple of years away from professional rugby with the MLR, but there was always an interest. So not surprised to see him kind of circle back here. And what an opportunity uh, for Zach Tesso, like to, to now kind of have Eddie looking at it and then looking at his, his coaching, like as a first year head coach to have this guy basically on your shoulder, helping you and pointing you around, giving you advice. And, and like we talked with Tendai, right? Usually that knowledge comes at the back end of your career for some of us when it's too late. Um, for others, you know, you, you develop a little sooner, but now Zach will have this experienced coach who's coached all over the world. And, you know, how many World Cups has he coached at? Did he have one with Australia, Japan, England? It's quite a few. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think he was he, was he a consultant with South Africa? I mean, it's been. Uh, I was when they I mean, when they won. Yeah. yeah right. So you know, I think that it's exactly that sort of stuff, and it's going to be interesting because you know, with um, you know Zach Test and Scott Murray as co-head coaches, I mean that's that's going to be an interesting challenge, and they're going to need someone who's going to help them work through. Um, how they work together, you know, roles and responsibility. Who, who has the last say? I mean, I would guess on selection, you're talking about sort of Zach in the backs and Scott in the forwards, but it's going to be an interesting dynamic. And, you know, obviously, you know, one of the most talented teams in the league um, had a, you know, them and the Arrows, right, in, in 2020 were going to be the teams that were going to make it to the finals. So big pressure on the coaches to be able to build on what 2020 looked like. I don't know about that, Pete. My Gil Groney just had a win over Houston. San Diego was headed to Austin. I thought we were going to... That was the start of the surge. You're still uh, working I mean, for more gear from the... From, from we, the we, carried, we carried that form into the virtual season and absolutely smashed them. And I think, you know, to blur the lines between reality and virtual in 2020, just you don't do that anymore. It's basically the same thing. And I think Austin would have gone on a tear and won it all, uh, beating Toronto in the final 67-3. Sam Malcolm kicked a penalty in the 78th minute just to make it respectable. So there you go. Like, like as, you said, as you said on our um, interview with The Beast, sort of, I'm the technical guy and you're the emotional guy. Just go, just go Dan. Go with all that emotion for the Gilgronies. Go for it. Love it. Good stuff. All right, we actually... We got this one come across. There's going to be some rugby. Uh, the Northeast Academy will play the Warriors development squad this fall. Um, first thing I will ask you, is this too soon for rugby to back? How they, or is this actually beneficial because it'll be a bit of a trial run for Major League Rugby to see how they manage these two squads, how we do rugby, um, 
I can't even say post-COVID because, you know, we're still in the midst no, of the thing. Yeah, but yeah, during a pandemic. Right. I mean, it's not obviously where we were a couple of months ago, but it's still still relevant. Um, I, the, the, the fan inside me is excited to see this happen and, and it fills me with hope moving forward for rugby in the US. But I'm also cautious because if this turns out to be something um, disastrous, could it push us back even further? Yeah, I mean, I think that most teams are now looking, you know, in their annual schedule to have the full be some sort of developmental season as a way to develop some of their younger players and give them and give them playing time. I mean, I have faith in in the major league rugby teams and, and their medical staffs in particular to be able to make it as safe as they can. I mean, I don't think you can make it safe. You there's there's different decisions that that are being made by different sports in different parts of the country. Like you can look at what the Big Ten and the Pac-12 have done, and like you know, issues with potential long-term heart disease um, or, or heart issues, right? Cardiac issues. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, most of this is not really what happens in the game. Most of this is what happens where you are in your environment and, and around the team. And you've seen that when there've been bubbles created, even in, co- you know, contact sports like basketball, there hasn't really been um, huge issues. The question is always going to be around testing. I think that for the major league rugby season, what I would look for is, you know, hopefully that some of these rapid tests that they can talk about, like swabs from the mouth or the saliva and those sorts of things, you can get tested quickly. That's the stuff that's going to make the major league rugby season um, more viable and more economically viable. Um, you know, I, I, no one knows where we're going to be. I think if you make any decision sort of more than like in the next couple of weeks, you don't know what's going to happen. So I'm sure they'll be monitoring the, the environment. It's great to have rugby back. Um, it's great to have that opportunity for players. You know, we, you know, you, you talk to, you know, Dan, you know, you've got kids that are college, it's college, not quite oh. college, school age. You Don't know, tell my wife. And, and they're, uh, um, they're, you know, working from home and that's never a big impact on them. Um, you know, if they have to, you know, have a whole semester, um, you know, and maybe a whole year working virtually, right. That's going to have an impact that impact's going to exist for some of these young rugby players that if they miss a year of development, that's a year you can't get back. Um, and so I think that's going to be one of the real challenges is that we think about the now, but, you know, if you said to someone, oh, um, you know, you want to be a top rugby player, but we're not going to let you pay, play for nine months, like that's going to impact long-term in- impact on your development. And so players need to find ways that they can continue to de- develop and learn. Um, and so, and the teams need to do that too. And I think that's why um, you see the Warriors uh, trying to find um, some competition to play against. Yeah, Warriors Northeast obviously tied into the Free Jacks there, albeit loosely. Uh, let's do some signings now as we'll go around the grounds. We'll stay up in New England with uh, three named up there recently Lucky Morris Lommy, uh, Eric Dejaga. And today it was Joe Johnson. Uh, I think his mum's American. Uh, Dad's a Kiwi, grew up in New Zealand, but was born in Boston. So, uh, Gary Gold, US eligible. Let's see how he goes. And uh, some good signings there. I'll keep running through Old Glory. Get Stephen Longwell and Mo Katz. Toronto, Jason Higgins. Austin re-signs Kurt Morath. Frank Kalai, Brennan Rams. Houston re-signing Kyle Breitenbach and Devet Bruce. New England. Bodine Walker, what a signing that is. Uh, his season cut short with injury. He looked to be very promising yeah, up there. Big big signing. Big signing. Yeah. That's, that's one of the big ones that I noticed. What an exciting talent. Like utility back can kind of play anywhere, but in space, really, really exciting player. Yep. Uh, really excited to see here. Mitch Wilson, Life University product, comes back, as does Stephen Hinshaw. San Diego, get Ryan Mattias, a friend of the show. Great guy, Ryan Mattias. Uh, Toto Vassal, Ben Mitchell, and Kenny Nasagege, they all come back. So San Diego not getting any weaker. Sorry to the yeah. West Coast. Toronto get John Sheridan uh, and the human clothesline, Mike Shepard. He comes back as well. So no more red card, Shep. Keep it calm this year in uh, 2021, brother. But uh, obviously the resigning is coming in, uh, as we saw with uh, free agency sort of opened up recently as well. So we'll probably see most squads actually start filling out soon, Pete, with these announcements. Uh, I know some of the coaches that you've spoken to privately and myself have said their roster is anywhere from 90 to 95% yeah. done at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think for some teams, 
you know, we talked a little bit about sort of um, the nat- I wouldn't say the natural skills, but the the skills of um, New Zealand players. And we see a lot of you know Kiwis taking up skill positions in the in the US. Um, and so I think there are still some teams that are like working on some of their overseas players and trying to fill um, some of those slots, spots in, in some of those key spots. But it's it's not a lot. I think most of the teams are, are pretty much locked in. They've, they've got a few players here and there that um, that that they're working on signing. Um, and now for most of them, they're thinking about what's the preparation and um, how are they, uh, um, you know, how are they going to prepare for the um, preseason, right? Which I think is being, um, you know, uh, pushed back a little bit. No one's quite sure, you know, no one knows really about what the season was. I know we talked to um, Alex Magleby a couple of weeks ago and he talked like the, probably the most likely scenario is pushing the start back of the season, maybe to April, um, 13 teams. Like there's, there's a lot of uncertainty. I know that that makes it um, quite difficult for uh, coaches and high performance staffs and, um, you know, general managers are definitely sort of on their way in their planning. Yeah, and the NFL starts this week too, so no preseason. So it'll be interesting to see the attrition rate with those players and we can obviously learn some lessons from that. Like, do we push it back enough to have a, a real preseason so we don't have that high injury rate, um, which, which, you know, we've found when you don't have a preseason, you're not body ready and you get these injuries. So. And, then, and then look at what the premiership is doing by playing twice a week. That's crazy. I mean, I mean, I mean, I, I, it, that's, that tells you that there's really something fundamentally wrong with the, with, with the people, the way people think about the game. I um, think, I think when you look at that and like what MLR chose to do last year, which was just pull the plug on the season versus um, what the premiership and the pro 14 did. I think the only league that did what MLR did was the top 14 where they said, you know, people talk about the player welfare or lack of in the top 14, but the, at the same time. Yeah, yeah, but the top 14 wasn't a decision by rugby. That was the government. The government said there's going to be no rugby, so they had to cancel it. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, I think that there's, you know, um, Major League Rugby, we've seen it when, when, when you have sort of like an extended season and it's week in, week out. That, that's a grind. Um, you know, twice a, twice a week as a coach, I mean, basically, if you're playing, if you've got three days between games, you have um, like a full day of recovery, right? And then you basically do something very light, but no contact. Um, and then you have the day before the game and that's it. And, and so your ability to actually adjust and make any improvements is basically zero. I mean, I saw this coaching the, uh, um, the US Women at the World Cup. Our schedule was games every three days. And when you come into that season, you have to have everything in place because you don't have any time to in- improve. It's basically recovery between games and managing the, the, the um, physical wellness and mental wellness of the players. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, we're going to get this in, at least in the UK, at least in England, I think you're going to see, it's got to, you know, you're going to have record injuries. And I think you're right, Dan. I think Major League Rugby has been quite cautious and has been, throughout all of this. And I think they will make sure that players have enough um, preparation time. Yeah, it's, it's, I think people don't appreciate how difficult it is. And this is, and premiership obviously much more difficult, but I think one of the years I was in France, we played regular season. There was a midweek, the Lord Stanley Cup, and then we played Challenge Cup against teams from the UK uh, every other week. So sometimes you would play, I think at one point we, I played six games in 12 days. Um, we, it's, yeah, it's like, and afterwards, you know, we just like, I just need a break. And then the physicality of that is not up to premiership rugby, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know how these guys are doing it, especially coming off like that long quarantine period. So, right. Well, and, and, you know, I think that it's, uh, like I said, I think um, the uh, incentives aren't aligned effectively. I mean, I think one of the things that we heard in New Zealand, which I thought was pretty interesting coming out of um, Super Rugby Aotearoa, is that they, um, they said it was too physical. They, they basically like, we can't have a super rugby season with just New Zealand teams because it's physically too demanding. We want to add the Aussies because that at least gives us <laughs> a couple of games where I don't, you know, um, my, my, like it just, and, and, it, and it's interesting because they go at it hammer and tongs, right? There's history there, um, there's physicality there. And so, you know, a lot of people were saying that 
you know, the New Zealand players themselves, even after that short season, even when it was, you know, one game a week, they were like, this is just too intense. Too intense, yeah. Well, it's been fun, Pete. Good show. Tendai, what a guy. Yeah, I mean, great to have him on. Um, if, he, if he comes back to the States, we should have him on again. You know, he's still in shape. I know he, he says he likes to be a bodybuilder, but, you know, I'm, I wonder if old Glory is going to keep, keep in his ear and just say, you know, just, just one more go. Just one more pack, go. Pack one more go. Only, you only have to play on the grass fields. We won't make you play on the artificial <laughs> turf anymore. All right, that one wraps it up. Pete Seinberg, Aaron Castro, I'm Dan Powell. This is the MLR kickoff. I hope you enjoyed the show and we'll catch you next time.